Welcome to the Business Trendsetter Podcast, where we talk about trends and how to grow your business. My name is Manny Turan. And I'm Adam Hartung. We're here every week to give you some insights about what's happening in the world as it pertains to trends. And we talk about uh, uh, five big trends, AI, the gig economy, asynchronous life, mobility, and demographics are all uh, tied. There's a, a bunch of other ones, right? Uh, and one of the things that's interesting about what's happening in the business world is uh, kind of tied to a couple of those, the kind of the gig economy, asynchronous life and work, uh, mobility and um, demographics all tied together. And that is, of course, people going back to the office. There's lots of big companies that are requiring their employees to come back to the office that are that are there are some that are keeping things the same. And there's even another group that's actually closing down their operations and everybody's working remotely. So the one we want to talk about today is the one that has to do with people returning back to the office or not, and what the implications are for the commercial real estate and thus the banking world. So Adam, tossing you this, this ball, it's a fast ball. Let's see if you can hit it. <laughs> okay, well, I thought last week, last podcast we did, it was a lot of fun to talk about how the workplace was changing and how the boomer generation was already well out the door and that uh, workhorse practices were going to change pretty dramatically. And, and if you didn't step up to it, you would hurt. But if you did step up, it gave you an advantage in terms of hiring, in terms of retention and all those good things. And so following through on that, you know, I did a little more research and there's a bank called Adam Bank out of the UK. And they took all their employees and they said, look, we're going to put you on a four day work week and we're going to keep the pay the same. In other words, we're not cutting your pay 20%, we're cutting your hours 20%. You're going to work four days a week. So it's not 40 hours crammed into four days. It's literally a four day work week. And they put that in place. And what they saw was that their um, their uh, uh, retention stayed high, their productivity went up, their need to hiring went down because they kept their people longer. The uh, scores that they got on a glass house type uh, scoring, you know, where, where people talk about good place to work went way up. They started getting better applicants, even though they had fewer jobs. So all these kind of good things happen. Now, at the same time, uh, Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan Chase gets out on television and the newspapers and gets himself quoted saying that everybody's going to have to come back into the office or they're going to pay a price. Like, you know, really very threatening about the whole thing. Well, here's wow. Jamie Dimon who's like 67 years old, right? He's the number one banker in the world. It's the largest bank in the United States, J.P. Morgan Chase. And it just shows that in some ways he's just really out of step with where the world is. And yep. this thing is, I want to get everybody back in the office. And, and what he's, he's demonstrating is this bias, right? That his bias is that people have to be in the office or I can't know that they're working, uh, which obviously is going to millennials and um, uh, millennials and Gen Zers that are working for him are going to start looking for somewhere else to go. They'd rather go work for Adam, right? So the whole movement towards fintech and the digital banks and away from the traditionalists yeah. will continue to be good, right? So that's that's a really important fa factor. But but. I really wondered about this people working from home, people working four days. And I've noticed, you know, so many people that I know don't go to any office anymore. So I started mm -hmm. to dredge up some statistics on this. And, okay. you know, it's true that there is a lot less real estate needed in Manhattan. For example, take the borough of Manhattan in New York City, office vacancy rates in March. So as of May, we've had 13 consecutive quarters of growing vacancy rates. Now, okay. vacancy rate means that the space is for lease. So the build, the people have left and it's empty and that space is now for lease. It's listed as for lease. Okay. It's 13 consecutive quarters 
the amount of spaces continue to increase being for, for uh, available. That's, that's even right before the pandemic, right? We've talked yeah. about this before, that the pandemic only accelerated these trends, and it was already trending in that direction. It was started going in that direction because, as we pointed out when we wrote Thrive to the Future, work from home and people working gig jobs, that is already a trend, and it would be accelerated in the pandemic, and that's what we predicted, and that's exactly what happened. But look how fast this happened. In March, the vacancy rate in Manhattan was 16.1%. By May, it was 17.4%. So, yeah. Now, what's happening is very, very few people are are leasing space, but people are leaving space, right? So then I learned that uh, nationwide, in March, the vacancy rate was 16.4%. But in May, it was 20%. 20%. So it's, it, if you take the whole nation, it's doing worse than Manhattan is doing. It's crazy. Right? Now, the other interesting thing is that if you go to lease space in an office building, um, it varies quite a bit depending on where you're located. But certainly in the larger office buildings and certainly in the skyscrapers and those kinds of things, they really push you on a long-term lease. You know, you're not going to walk in there with a one-year lease. They're not going to do build-out. Yeah, 10 years usually. Yeah. So what they do, the big, the number one lease term is 10 years and a short-term lease is five. And there's a few threes. But most of them are 10. So what you end up with is if somebody during the pandemic said, hey, people working from home, I don't need this space. I'm going to clear out half a floor here. But the lease is still in place, say, for another three years. They have to keep paying the lease. You know, they're like, we're going to cut our losses. We're not going to pay for air conditioning and heating and, and, and janitorial services. People want to work from home. So we're going to cut our costs. But we can't get out of this lease. And we'll, turn it, we'll tell the landlord, please find us a lessee if you can. But the landlord's not going to do anything for them because the landlord's already got a bunch of lease space available, right? So they have to keep paying the lease. So it doesn't go into the vacancy. So they actually track use. And the way they track usage is they'll say, okay, people that have said I've left the space, told the mm-hmm. landlord they were gone. And the second way is most of our big buildings these days, you can't get into them without swiping a card. Yeah, so if you're an employee, you swipe right. the card. Yeah. yeah. If you're a guest, you have to fill out a form, you get a card, you get to swipe and you get in. So they actually track the employees and how many employees are using the office space. And that was fascinating. It turns out that in Manhattan, use is only 49%. 40, so half of the office space in Manhattan was empty. So then I started saying, well, you know, what does this do in other markets? Well, okay, the, 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 um, in San Jose, California, the use rate is 37%. In San Francisco, it's 41%. That's and what that telling us, yeah, it's tech companies, right? So yeah. the, more, the more you can do your work from home, the more you are doing your work from home, the more we've got all this empty space sitting out there. And, and this is really phenomenal and, and, and means important. First of all, you need to understand your statistics, you know, like digging through not just vacancy rates. But what does it really tell us? Because if you look at retail, for example, the retail vacancy rate is 6%. But you think about it for me and say, that, that doesn't make sense. Look at all the empty shopping malls I've seen. And look at all, I go by a strip mall and, you know, yeah. one quarter of them. Well, why? Well, that's again, because it's not doing the use data. It's doing the vacancy rate data. And so if a mall closes down, then they just take all that out of the statistics. So all those shows, closed shopping malls are sitting there gathering bats and guana are, are right. not in the statistics anymore. So you can't say, oh, retail's doing great because it's only 6% vacant. When in mm-hmm. fact, the use rate is is now down below fifty percent as well in retail. So we I have did all. A little, yeah. I did a little drive around town, uh, and I looked around for commercial 
spaces and kind of seeing what's being built and uh, some of the office buildings that they have a, a vacancy sign out front and so forth, available space. And the majority of what I've seen around Tucson are giant logistics centers being put up. That's 95% of what I've seen. Yeah. And a handful of, uh, of coffee places and, and that kind of thing. But the majority are these logistics company, you know, uh, like Amazon and so forth. And then the office spaces that I've looked around, they're all, they all have vacancy signs. They all have, if you want space, contact this person. And so um, it's going to be interesting what happens in the next three, four, five years with the commercial real estate world, even this year. Yeah. And so let me take, let's take that other peeling the onion back again, trying to understand trends, understand what the implications are. So now if I had a, a work area, it could be a vertical building in a, in a city like Tucson or Phoenix, or it could be a cluster of offices, you know, new office clusters, you know, there's an office area over here, two-story buildings, seven buildings inside that area. But what do you get around that? You get coffee shops and you get luncheonettes, right? And you get breakfast shops and you get um, after hours places where people meet for cocktails and have conversations at the end of the workday and take clients and hotels and that sort of thing. Well, what's happening now? So that we call that storefront retail. Right. So storefront retail, not in a mall, not in a strip mall. It's a storefront retail sitting in its own environment. So storefront retail is now 20 percent empty in the United States. 20 percent. Now, that's really kind of a hardship because most of your storefront retail, well, not most. There's quite a bit of storefront retail that is entrepreneur owned. You know, yes, Starbucks dominates in coffee, but there's independent coffee shops. And yes, there are certainly franchises that do breakfast and luncheonettes and that kind of thing with, you know, coffee and drinks. Uh, and even the sort of chilies and the, the, you know, the other franchises that do evenings. But you can sit there and think about driving around Tucson and you see a lot of places that are, you know, employee owned, right? So like, yeah. was it, wouldn't your mother or your grandmother have a restaurant? Yeah, my whole family's had restaurants. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, what's happening is now that when people went to the office and they'd say, well, let's go get lunch. Well, they'd go to, to your mom's family, you know, to the place and have a nice lunch. Well, if they're not going to the office anymore, they're not going out to have lunch anymore. Right. I don't know what, you know, if they're making a. Well, they're making it or what happened to me today at lunch is I went to a sandwich shop here uh, that had just opened about a month ago. Tiny place had about uh, six small tables inside. And they had a bunch of people working the back. I mean, there was probably eight people making sandwiches. And the time I was there, I actually ate my sandwich in the restaurant. There was uh, six people who came in uh, for pickup. Yeah. I was there for maybe 15 minutes. It was a pretty fast lunch. And of those six people, the guy asked each one of them, is this meal for you or are you picking up for somebody else? Because if it was for them, they, he would ask them a question about what, what they wanted or a side or, a, you know, like um, condiments. And uh, it just is very interesting that the amount of traffic that they were um, producing, the majority of it was to go because there was six tables. We were all occupied. Yeah. Six people came in and came out. It's pretty yeah. incredible. Well, and it does imply that, that, you, you know, if you're, if you want to be in the restaurant business, which I'm glad people want to do that, um, then in the old days, you had to have tables for people to sit. You had to have waitresses to serve them, you know, and, that's the you don't expect that anymore. I'm not saying it's all going away, but the trend is you're fighting a trend because every year fewer people, the fewer percentage of the workforce is working in offices. We're now seeing that that percentage is big enough that we had this big move out during the pandemic that aren't going to go back. And just a further testament to that. Remember when we had this whole thing about the uh, 
the worker, the labor, what do you call it? The labor workforce or labor force. Um, oh gosh, I can't read my handwriting. Participation. Remember with the pandemic, where they're saying the labor force participation went down. Yeah. And so that was why, you know, productivity numbers were skewed and all this. And when are we going to get those people back to work? Well, the reports came out this week that we've recovered now. Hmm. That we have the, the people back to work. So we went through people not working in the in the pandemic. Then we went through the great resignation, remember? Right. Which was a lot of millennials and Gen Zs saying, I'm not going back to the office. So, yeah, we had the great resignation. But now we've had companies come back in and say, I'm going to pay more and I'm going to meet your needs better. And so those people have started to go back to work so that now they say on a national basis, the labor participation rate has come back up again. But we're not seeing people go into offices. So don't expect it. We've already proven that's not going to happen. If you serviced people in offices, like maybe you were a dry cleaner that was in a building and you like to service people that drop off in the morning, pick up in the evening, that kind of a thing. Well, you have to say, no, that's probably not going to be a good model going forward. I'm yeah. going to have to have a model with takeout, you know, or I'm sorry, where I, where I deliver, I pick up and deliver. As you said, if I wanted to have a sandwich shop, I could depend on people coming in and having a sandwich and a cup of coffee. Well, you know, I don't know. You know, probably going to have yeah. to do a lot. Depend a lot have you heard of a, of a coffee company called Blank Street Coffee? I haven't. So uh, obviously Starbucks has, I forget how many stores in, I think 30, 32, 33,000 across the U.S. Um, there's a company that I like called BlackRock Coffee that has about, at the time I looked last year, about 120 stores. Um, and they probably have about 200 by now. But there's a company based out of New York City called Blank Street Coffee that has been growing like wildfire. They now have 100, uh, 150 places where they sell this coffee. And what, what's different about them is, you know, you think about Starbucks, they have uh, uh, these $8,000 machines, right? That people go mm-hmm. and baristas make the coffee and there's all kinds of incarnations. You can have soy this and oat milk that, and you know, this is just crazy, right? Uh, so they use technology, but they're, they're people. And so Blank Street, they kind of flipped it around and they're actually a technology company that happens to make coffee. Okay. Their machine is $50,000. <laughs> Seriously, you push a button and it spits out the, the product and it's high quality. I mean, this, they're spending a lot of money on the technology side and their, their claim to fame is that you can have a better interaction with the barista. They can say, hey, what's your name, Adam? Hey, what you, how's your day going? What's going on? And so they build this little rapport but I'm thinking that one of the other steps they're going to make is they're going to actually have these freestanding places where you can get really high quality coffee, like in a vending machine. But uh, we'll, we'll talk about that later. I just thought that was interesting. I heard this morning about that that brand. Well, no, it, it makes a lot of sense because you say, what are people looking for today? And um, honestly, the variations that Starbucks offered are not interesting to me. I, I find that most of the variations add a tremendous amount of calories to the drink. And, and I don't enjoy that. It's my lifestyle. I need the fewest calories I can get, but I do like some variation in my coffee. And I do know that if you have one of those really high end computerized machines, you can take the same coffee and by altering the pressure, altering the water, uh, just a few alterations in it, you can have the same amount of coffee, the same grind, the same bean, same amount taste different. Right. Yeah. And so now if the barista starts saying, well, you oh, Adam, your taste, it runs more towards a little bit bitter. You like a little this, that. Then he can program up the machine and get, you know, I can have Adam's coffee. That yeah. would make me a dedicated customer to go yeah. in. Right. So that's exactly what I think we're trying to say here is that you could depend if you were in the right location in Starbucks, it would be in the right location and I'll get a line out the door. 
and people all come in and they have their lingo they use to order that coffee. But that's going to continue. I mean, I wouldn't want to be running Starbucks these days no. for that reason, you know, but I would do love this idea that you're saying about personalization because that does fit. If I'm a gig worker and I'm out there working, I'm like, hey, I want to go get a cup of coffee. I would go somewhere where they said, oh, you're Adam. Okay. Yeah, Adam. Oh, well, we see this is what you like, what the same as you usually get, or would you like something else? Or can I, how can I help you today? Right. And really customize up that coffee. I, I think that's a great idea. I, there was another company that I came across this week that um, they actually are out of Chicago. And what they do is they take and they make um, salads and, and healthy type products, but salads are dominant one. And they, they put all, this, all the ingredients of the salad in a jar. And then they have vending machines. And they somehow, they, they go out. Now, they monitor every single vending machine in the, that they have in the country. One of their big places is airports, where it's hard to get healthy food. And it's also very expensive. And so they, but they put the vending machine in, they monitor the consumption of products. They have algorithms to try to do predictions. And then they send, they go to every vending machine every single day. They take the old jars out to so multiple salads and they put the new jars in. Then you can come up and you can put your credit card up to the machine and you can say, you want this salad and the salad comes out of the jar. And then you have a choice. They showed how you could either, because all the ingredients are in the jar, you can loosen uh, make the, the dressing, freshen it up and shake the jar and you can eat the salad right out of the jar. Or you could have, they have these paper, um, like the old fashioned thing that uh, paper things that French fries used to come in and you could put the salad in the, there and you could pour the dressing on top and eat it. And what they're appealing to is people on the go, right? They're saying, oh, I want something simple. I want a, a nice salad. Um, I'm sorry, I don't think of Subway when I think of salad, right? If I want something. And so this is, they're trying to appeal to that same thing. It's the individual Working asynchronously, gig worker, on the go, people not in the office, how do I try to take care of them? So I think, again, what we're trying to say is that this, this commercial real estate consumption rate going down creates things we have to pay attention to. And if mm -hmm. it's going to affect your current business, how is it going to be negative? Or can you turn it into an opportunity? And how can yeah. you make that into an opportunity? But I do think that we have to be very, very aware of the fact that we just have way too much retail space and way too much commercial space out there. And at the same time, we have a housing crisis, which is kind of insane. That's <laughs> uh, crazy. So yeah. speaking of that, let's talk. Let's kind of shift uh, downshift here and talk about how the the banking industry is going to deal with the commercial. Uh, retails or uh, uh, real estate space. I mean, they're they're yeah. they're tied very tightly together, right? Usually, yeah. if you're buying a piece of uh, of real estate, uh, commercial real estate, you're not paying cash. And right. So let's talk about that. Maybe putting five to twenty percent down at most. And the in in that space, you would typically there's one place where the regional banks are very strong, as opposed to the national banks like the J.P. Morgan and Chase and the Bank of America's and the Wells Fargo's. There's a, the, the regional banks tended to play a lot in that world. And so you'd say, I want to build an office building. I want to go for 10-year leases. And so consequently, I'm going to go borrow the money. Well, you know, recently, if you just go back before Jerome Powell, the, the, the killer of all killers, um, if you go back before that, uh, then what had, you had zero interest rates, right? So I'd say, man, I'm in the real estate game. I want to put this building up as my collateral. I mean, I could get a very, very low rate. You know, I'm, you wouldn't get zero, but it was really, really low. The problem was that the people on the other side said, you know what, um, we're not going to give you that rate on a 20-year loan. <laughs> we'll amortize it on 20 years, but hey, I'm not going to promise you that rate. I'm going to make some money down the road. And I'm sure rates will come up a little bit. 
So what happened was you borrowed, but they would only give you like two, three, four, five years on the term, on the loan. Well, what that means is that in the United States alone, we're going to have more than 25% of all the, the commercial real estate in the country is going to come up for renewal on their mortgages, over 20%. It is calculated by the Federal Reserve to be $1.5 trillion of loans that are going to come up on the commercial real estate. These were offered, these loans were offered at very, very low interest rates, and they were typically done at anywhere from 95 to 85% of the valuation of the building. Now, let's back that up into kind of what this means. Um, say that you're, what we, we now have that, based upon all we're talking about with the, the real estate, okay, the, and, and how people aren't using the real estate, um, yeah. commercial real estate prices are down 15% this year, okay, 15%. Okay. Now, the, um, uh, the, they're pro projected by the, in the next 18 months to decline 40%. So from the start point, they're down 15, they're expected to go down another 25 or 40%. Well, okay, if I go in and I say, okay, I want to refinance my building. And somebody says, well, the building's only worth 85% of what it was worth before. Oh, and by the way, your interest rate's going to go from, say, 25 or 3% to 8%. What happens is now the cost of the loan and the depreciation of the building means that it's the, the loan doesn't stand up anymore. Mm -hmm. All lenders want to have you, the income from the building. The, the target rate is that uh, when you have a, if you're a lender, you say, I want the cash flow from that building to be 10% of the mortgage every year. Now they're not taking all of that, but they're saying, okay, we've got to have some money to, for investors. We've got to have money for the salespeople. We've got to have all these other objectives. So consequently, what I want, it's kind of like the, the 10% is kind of like when they would say, well, if you've got a house, you, your total, uh, you, you can only pay 25% of your take-home pay into a mortgage. You know, right. that's what they're trying to do. And it's 10% for these office buildings. But the reality is, is that 50% utilization, they can't make it, right? So we're seeing all this equity get wiped out. Now, this equity, in case of commercial real estate, it isn't a lot of entrepreneurs. You know, entrepreneurs do own commercial real estate. I don't want to back off that. But I will say that when we get to the really big dollars, we're talking about pension funds and BlackRock and these large organizations that put up literally billions of dollars that go into these these loans, right? And, but they're not going, I'm sorry, they're not the lenders often. They're the, the equity holders. Well, now what happens is we sit there and say, okay, I got a building. I can't even come close to making 10% of the mortgage on it. Mm -hmm. Real estate prices have gone down 15, 20, 25%, 30%. What you do is you turn to the lender and you say, hey, here's the keys, dude. You got the building. You own it. Yeah. But the problem is that doesn't fix the problem. So now what happens is the equity holder has been wiped out. So all of you that are investors in commercial real estate, real estate trusts, REITs, uh, listen, because we saw the retail hammer. Now we're going to see the commercial hammer. All right. I wouldn't want to be in that space, folks. If you don't see it coming, open your eyes. But the second thing is the banks are going to be sitting there saying, we've got buildings now that are worth less than what the loan was. So now I have to write that loan off. That's the same problem we've had recently where they had to write off these um, uh, uh, treasury bonds that they bought that had 2% or, you know, very, very low interest rates. And now the interest has gone up. The bond value has gone down. They had to write it off and it wiped out their equity. That's what we saw at Signature Bank. It's what we saw at Silicon Valley Bank. Mm -hmm. So we saw this get wiped out. Well, the next wave is going to be on these commercial loans. J.P. Morgan Chase, um, the analyst there, said that 20%, the projection is 20% of all commercial real estate loans will go bad. 
20 percent by what that. date uh, in the next three years this is at 1.5 trillion dollars of loans coming up in the next yeah. three years they uh, they expect to write down 40 percent so 40 percent of 1.5 trillion is 600 billion dollars that the banks will be writing off in the next three years there was a senator from Illinois that uh, they claim, nobody knows, I mean, I, he never really said it, but he just got lucky. He claimed to have said in the Senate one day, a billion here, a billion there, and pretty soon it all adds up to real money. Uh, and certainly I would say that people should pay attention to the banks writing off $600 billion worth yeah. of loans. So what does that mean? Well, that means if you're a small business person, First of all, let's go kind of back this up. About two, three years ago, Manny, do you remember we had a really bright young fellow on their show and he was, he made beer and he talked about how his craft, he grew his craft brewing company. Yeah. My, my buddy, Ben. Yeah. I go to that yeah. brewery all the time. And he had made some good decisions. Like he didn't get into doing food. Instead, he let the next the place next door do food and they could bring it in and do it in his craft beer shop. And one of the questions he was pondering at the time was whether or not he should go for a long-term lease, get a different building, right? And we advised him at the time. We said, look, based upon trends, short-term lease, short-term, because rents will go down. And so I'm hoping Ben took our advice at that time because rents for what he does should be down in Tucson. And he should be able to take advantage of that for the next two years. Now, we always have microeconomy issues. And so the economy in Tucson may be doing better than the national average. It could be different. But the reality is the first thing is if you're a business person out there, don't be going out on any long-term leases these days, even if the rate looks really good, because the, it's going to continue to go down. We're going to continue to have opportunities that are going to come along. If you're thinking about expanding your business, that's great. But realize you're not in a position where the, the landlords can dictate to you what's going on because you're going to be able to strike a deal. Mm -hmm. Just be willing to argue for it, right? Get out there and make your case and force them to come down on the price as far as you can. Because these people are going to be desperate. They're going to be desperate to find a use for the building. Now, that's so, so that's the business decision we can make. Um, I, I think that this will probably affect the Federal Reserve. They darn near killed our economic prospects already with what they've done. Um, two banks, two important banks have been gone out of business and a few other smaller banks. Um, I, I, if they don't see this as the threat that it is, you know, that I can't even hope that Jerome Powell will ever get eyeballs. But let's I think it will cause them to stop raising interest rates. I think if we wipe off let's 600 hope. billion. Well, six hundred billion dollars of equity—that that's going to be a massive hit to the economy. That's extraordinarily deflationary, right? Yeah. And so we're going to make up for that. The only way you make up for deflation is by more dollars, which means lower interest rates that you're going to have. So in the process of killing inflation, we could well be kill, creating deflation, which would cause that recession that I keep saying I don't think we can avoid. So yeah. being prepared for a recession would be good. Being prepared for lots of real estate being available would be good. Now, another piece that I think is important here is zoning. People that build houses and build retail space and build commercial office buildings build what they're allowed to build. The city of Tucson, city of Phoenix, the city of Las Vegas, all of the cities out there have zoning rules. Houston's are some of the most liberal and places like San Francisco are some of the most strict. But part of the reason we have so much commercial space, well, not part, the reason we have it is because some planning, city planning people said, this is what we're going to do, and we're going to build this. This will be commercial, and this will be yeah. residential. Well, now we're going to have to do something about that. We have to do some zoning changes. We're going to have to say these commercial buildings don't have a use. There's no fair use. Can we convert those into something more usable? 
Now, everything I read is that when you build a commercial office building, it is just not designed to be something you live in. You not know, really, no. Play out. Everything's not really designed for it. But we're going to probably have to do that. We're going to have to start saying, well, we have to put the investment in. If you look around our country, I, there is no major city I go to that I don't see homeless people. None. You know, I, I visit wonderful Tucson. There's there's homeless people. Nobody can avoid it, right? So here, on the one hand, we have what we call a housing shortage. Uh, you know, I, I have a son that's 32 years old, and he can't afford to buy a house, even though he has a PhD. And he talks about real estate being too expensive. Um, and, and then we have people living on the streets. Well, we have a housing shortage. We can confront that if we realize that some of this retail space and some of this commercial space needs mm -hmm. to be converted. But that conversion, we can't sit there and say that's a market opportunity because there's no developer that can go out and do those conversions unless the zoning changes. Somebody yeah. has to say that that was zoned retail. We can now zone it residential. And then somebody can come in there and make a plan and try to get that conversion. So, so for most of us in business today, it's important that we start really lay at the local level, start really arguing for this rezoning to start happening and happening quickly. You know, we need to be able to say if there's a multi-use facility, let's get it zoned off for residential. Yeah, um, I think we, we've talked about this in the past, how the, you know, the government is, um, in my opinion, need, needs to step up and, and work with these zoning issues. We've talked about immigration issues where if we were to be more open with our borders and in a very specific way, we could have capitalized on, on lots and lots of people that are looking to advance their, their career and their professional life and so forth. And I, I don't know. I mean, I don't like dealing with the government very much. I think nobody really does. But and I'm certainly not a politician. I have friends that are and I, I, I don't understand why they would actually go forth and do that. But uh, I think there's got to be some eye opening conversations happening in, in the next, you know, two, three, four five years as we're dealing and facing with these issues. Well, I know that our listeners probably don't talk to their congressperson or their senator at all. <laughs> Most of us don't. Uh, the rare exceptional time I've had a conversation with one was almost by accident rather than being, hey, I want to talk to you because I got a problem. But what we often do have much better relationship with is our the representatives we have at the state level, our Congress people at the state level, our county commissioners, our local commissioners. We have a much stronger relationship. And we've certainly seen a lot of people be very active in school boards over the last few years. Um, but take some of that energy and start saying, wait a minute, you know, if I've got some homeless people in my town, what can I do? You know, can we work with people to get the zoning rules changed, to get a developer involved? to see if we couldn't come up with some low-cost housing for homeless. Now, you know, everybody says, well, homeless people are there because of mental health issues and, and drug addiction, and that is part of the issue. But it's not the whole issue. There yeah. are people who just can't afford it, people who got displaced. Something went wrong in their lives. They yeah. ended up out and about. You know, I, I, There's untold numbers of, of marriages that didn't survive for for often abusive husbands, things like that. And a woman and a child end up you know, living in their car. They, they don't want to be homeless. We could help them. If we change the zoning, we get the developers in there. We could really start to tackle the zoning problem. We could take some of these facilities and that are commercial buildings and turn them into uh, units for drug treatment, turn them into uh, facilities that could be used uh, for uh, mental health, right? Um, now is a great time to do that. You know, we've ignored these problems a lot in our country. We try to say that they're individual problems. They're up to the individual to solve. We don't try to step in there and do much. But, hey, if the real estate's there and the real estate's going to be very, very affordable, yeah. 
and we zone it so that some developer can say, hey, I could probably turn this into a usable space for this. And then then you tend to, you know, this is one of those situations where then you'll tend to get somebody to say, hey, I'm a physician. I'm in the mental health world. Yeah, let's put a clinic together. You know, I'll come in there and run a clinic or somebody would say, yeah, I'm all up for taking and creating multifamily dwellings. I I recently heard a statistic that just blew me away. California has the biggest homeless problem in the United States, but over 90% of all the residential zoned residential space in California is zoned single family. Hmm. It's apparently part of the history of the state going way back. They like the idea of single family homes. So everybody having their own individual small single family house. And if you think about it, when you drive through many of the areas around Los Angeles and Fresno and, you know, you know, the San Francisco Bay Area, you see these communities, you know, drive them down just row after row of these individual small houses. And you see a lot of mobile home parks, right? Trailer parks, as we call them in Oklahoma. You see a lot of them. Why? Well, because the zoning demanded that it had to be single family dwellings. Well, it's time to rethink that, right? And <laughs> say, come on, let, you know, let's get people in these multifamily dwellings. We can build them from scratch. But if we got empty retail space is one that I, I that's yeah, not. There's a lot of things we can be doing. And, um, you know, I think that this conversation is going to open some some doors, hopefully, and some thinking of just having people rethink the way that they're they're doing business and rethinking how they're um, how they're going to grow and, and what sort of businesses they should be working on. Uh, so what kind of final thoughts do you have for us, Adam, before we log off for today? Well, again, this all started by thinking about millennials and Gen Z and what is it they want from the workforce. And what I'm trying to make sure our listeners get through this is start unpeeling what that means. What is the impact? So the impact one, impact level two, impact level three. And that's how we build our scenarios. And then once you've got a scenario, you can really look around and say, what are my threats and what are my real opportunities? Don't look inward. Don't look at the competitor you've talked about for the last 10 years. Look at the world. Look at the market, look at how things are changing, and then start peeling the onion yourself, get these insights, and then change your investment profile and how you make your decisions. Very well said, Adam. We'll talk with you next week, and until then, cheers. Thank you, Manny.